0: like standing in a wind tunnel and someone has a bucket full of money and they just kind of chuck it in the air and you're just kind of, some money's hitting you in the face and someone's flying past you and that's kind of how the budget works in
1: football, Like most of the, the, the bucket is probably the player.
2: Welcome to Sport Inc,
1: a podcast where we look beyond the field of play to discuss the business, politics, science and future of sports.
2: Each episode we'll have an expert guest, I'm Isabel Westbury
1: and I'm Tim Wigmore and together we're your hosts.
2: I'm sitting here with Tim Wigmore, who's a sports writer for The Telegraph and also contributes to The Economist and ESPN Quick Info.
1: And I'm sitting here with Isabel Westbury, who's a journalist for The Telegraph and a broadcaster for the BBC and Sky.
2: Every year, data and sport seems to get closer and closer together. Its impact becomes more important, more people get more interested in it. Whereas in the past, data used to be a sort of a niche topic and a um, a story in which, from which you've made Hollywood films, now it, it, it impacts almost all of the game. So, um, yeah, and Tim.
1: Yeah, we have a, obviously a big debate within sport. Uh, you know, are we using too much data? Are we not using enough? Is data sort of, is it sucking the joy out of sport? Is it sucking the spontaneity uh, out, of, out of decisions? Is it, is it also replacing intuition? And um, what are the dangers about that? Um, so today we thought we'd uh, talk to Omar Chowdhury, the head of football intelligence at 21st Club, uh, who advised uh, teams uh, throughout Europe um, and really get a sense of, of how football has been changed by, by data.
2: I was really keen to talk to Omar because his his job title and description um, says that it adds he's adding context to data. So he's not just a numbers guy. He's yeah, not just about
1: the spreadsheets. He's about... Yeah, tangibly advising clubs and advising them, you know, within the, the limitations that, that they have within the particular circumstances and everything. Um, and he's, yeah, he's worked with a number of teams uh, throughout, throughout Europe and he's worked with teams at different levels. So uh, get a sense of, you know, how data is different for clubs, you know, in league one or whatever, versus, you know, the, the very elite, elite clubs at the top of the Premier League and, and Champions League. Um, so we had a, a chat really about all, all aspects of, of football and data, and of course the future and where this all ends
2: up and we were really lucky because Omar also went into the the nuances of data i mean it's very easy to broad brush the term um but actually there's there's many different aspects of it there's sports science bits there's uh, the economic factors of it um there's the habitual kind of um character side of it with the players that are involved um and he, so he talked to us a bit about that about how that would serve different aspects of sport he talked about the the crossover between other professions perhaps finance as well and how that can learn from the game but also impact sport and it was yeah, it was a really interesting topic and hopefully you'll think so too
1: so yeah here's Omar uh, Omar uh, thanks very much for, for joining us um, nice to have you here thanks for having me um, we'll start with can you explain what it is that, that you do and uh, football's been running a long time without 21st club so what's what's the point of you yeah
0: it's a good question um so tw- 21st club was uh, was founded back in 2013 uh, with the aim of helping clubs look beyond the next game and look take a more strategic view uh, on football uh, football's obviously changed a lot in the last kind of 20 30 years um, and there's still very much a cycle of looking forward to the next game and reacting to the next game. Uh, and that creates a lot of short term thinking, a lot of short term decision making, which obviously can affect uh, affect the club. Uh, so what we try and do is act as kind of a surveillance mechanism uh, for clubs, leagues, associations, uh, and try and help them with various problems that they either have or don't know they have yet that might be coming down the line. So we've been going about five years now. Most of our work is on kind of strategy and, and recruitment uh, work with clubs. Um, but it's yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting to be working on these
1: kind of diverse set, diverse set of issues uh, for, for different clubs. And how smart or not are football clubs have yet to <laughs> summarise. Well,
0: <laughs> it's difficult to summarise because it's such a wide range. And um, so you get, you get some football clubs who are hiring, you know, PhD physicists um, to do some of their kind of number crunching and, and do some of their decision making. And at the end, other end of the scale, you get football clubs who don't pay interns
2: and kind of you know try and. Are almost. you talking about football clubs within the Premier League or within the international? Oh, uh, in, internationally,
0: really. But even within the kind of English football spectrum, you do get this big range of, of clubs who are really kind of switched on and understand that there are things that there are inefficiencies essentially in in football that they can exploit. And you get other clubs who just kind of turn the wheel and and are almost kind of treading water to a degree. Um, and they all come with different challenges. So. You know, clubs down the pyramid for example when it comes to recruitment there's a huge pool of players they can recruit out there um, not just within the UK for example but globally uh, but they have no means to tap into that because they've got budgets of I mean, five ten million pounds but no scouts uh, you know they can't they can't really go out there so that's where data which a lot of what we do can help uh, and at the sharp end of you know at the top end of the game um, you know, the big clubs they have other issues where actually, because the the money they're investing in these players is so huge, they really need to have a, a certain level of rigour when they're making decisions.
2: And is part of it to do with allocation of funds? Do mm. some of those clubs that have a lot of money just don't sort of budget enough for that data side of things?
0: Yes. So, yeah, you, you're right. I mean, the, the someone once described to me kind of working in football, uh, particularly in kind of... Um, in the services space in football it's a bit like standing in a wind tunnel and someone has a bucket full of money and they just kind of chuck it in the air and you're just kind of some money's hitting you in the face and someone's flying past you. And that's kind of how the budget works in football. Club. Like most of the, the the bucket's probably the player. He's got he's got all the money there and the rest of it's just kind of a lot of the time kind of flying around in so different you, directions. You've
2: got to come along with your butterfly net. A little bit, yeah, it's a little <laughs>
0: crystal maze, yeah exactly. Yeah, trying to grab out the air <laughs> sometimes. But, but 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 it's interesting, I mean some clubs have obviously become a lot have realised the opportunity there and will spend a lot more on um, essentially non-playing staff and investing in that, that area of the club. Uh, it, I found it interesting, UEFA do this kind of annual football benchmark summary of, of finances and they have this metric of proportion of uh, wages that are spent on playing staff and non-playing staff. And it's interesting in some of the, particularly like Scandinavian countries, uh, Netherlands, Belgium, a lot of the budgets there are spent on non-playing staff uh, which kind of indicates to a degree. How, how
1: high a percentage? Uh,
0: so in the Netherlands, I think it's something like 50, 60% spent on non playing staff, which is pretty and high. How would that compare to
1: Premier League clubs? I think
0: English clubs, the top men, I can't remember, but it's probably around 30%, maybe.
2: Um, That's quite pertinent to, to now oh because we're sitting, talking when Ajax, mm-hmm. who. Um, have a lot lower budget than most of the other big name clubs around yeah, Europe who yeah. have just got into the next round of the Champions League and are, do, and are punching above their weight. Yeah, yeah. Is, is that because they do invest in data?
0: Well, they're, they're, I mean, they're a really smart club, um, Ajax, um, in that... So, on, on the point around money, they they earn less uh, per season than like teams at the bottom of the Premier League do because the TV deal in the Netherlands is absolutely tiny and there's only so much commercial reach you can have within the Netherlands, only 17 million people. There's only so many kind of customers you can tap yeah. into there. Whereas whereas within the UK, even a club like West Brom or Huddersfield theoretically has sixty million people, you know, within within the UK they can tap into. So I expect to be smart and it's not I mean, I wouldn't know the ins and outs, but it's not necessarily through data. i have obviously been terrific at developing players and, and being at the top of the Dutch game, they can attract a lot of the best Dutch players and they can almost act as almost like a feeder for the Dutch national team to a degree. You know, a lot of the, the key players in the Dutch team have gone through through Ajax. So they've got that kind of competitive advantage compared to other teams uh, with bigger budgets globally. Um, but in general, they've been very good at, you know, buying players and reselling them and then reinvesting reinvesting that money. You know, they're taking on Spurs, and I think four Spurs players have ex, uh, used to play for Ajax. Um, you know, and they're, they're, that's kind of all on that talent pathway through to the top that a lot of players see Ajax as an opportunity to get a move to Spain or get a move to England. Um, and if you can position yourself as a, as a club to do that, then that's that's really useful because you just start attracting a new kind of brand of players that you might not have. Do you think for before.
1: for clubs outside the sort of super elite, having that very clear model and almost quite, so it's almost quite transparent, mm. both for the players and the clubs, a bit like with Dortmund as well, as are, is, a, is a smart smart way to go? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you speak a lot about this with clubs.
0: I think Southampton a really good case study where Southampton are... Pretty much the only Premier League club, maybe alongside Spurs, in the last kind of five six years, have consistently given young players from the academy a chance. And when when you're like a parent and you have got a kid who and you got the choice between I don't know Southampton, Bournemouth, Brighton to go to, you go you go to Southampton because you know that your kid has a chance of of making it there because they've got this philosophy, very clear philosophy of bringing. Players through the club
2: because that's where someone like Gareth Bale has come through.
0: Yeah, exactly. Bale, also Chamberlain, more recently Shaw, Alana, all those players like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's yeah having having a clear and this is kind of all this kind of fits into having a more almost corporate identity as a club to a degree, having a more clear vision, strategy, objectives about what you want to achieve, um, rather than just being a football club and just going out there on Saturday and winning matches. That clubs are needing to take a much more holistic view now because. A, there's much more competition between clubs for talent. There's a lot more information available for everyone, so everyone's got access to the same video and all the players. So you need to find different ways of doing it. And so yes, you know we've spoken a little bit about data. Yes, data is part of what we do, but there's also this kind of broader kind of surveillance of what what works, what doesn't work, and and how can you differentiate yourself as a club in order to be
1: attractive to players, fans, and so on. Do you see most innovation coming from clubs who don't have it all out of necessity? A bit like we saw with the mm. original. Um, the Oakland A's, who were the the Maneville team, yeah, and they were a team with you know some a very small wage bill compared to their their rivals. Again, do you see the same in, in football where
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. You got your kind of traditional four super clubs: so Real Madrid, Barcelona, Man United, Bayern Munich, all having, with the exception probably of Barcelona, all having you know not great seasons this season in their their recent context, and like, they all got different contexts, but. Um, there, there are a number of clubs you feel like below them. So you mentioned Dortmund earlier, You know Liverpool, Spurs, Ajax have mentioned the types of clubs that are having to, to kind of almost win by thinking differently because they just can't have the same budgets as those clubs. We often talk about almost imposing your own constraints. So one of the most interesting clubs out there I think is Athletic Club in, in Spain who only play Basque players. And so when you create that kind of constraint, you have to develop your players, you're absolutely committed to that, there's nothing else you can you're do. You're all can't, in. You, yeah. yeah, exactly, you're all in. You can't go and recruit from Croatia or from Mexico, you know, to get the next next talent. You have to be dedicated to that.
2: It's a bit like Yorkshire. Yeah, yeah it, is, Yorkshire. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah it is. Very kind of. Um, I wonder when parallel. they'll
2: break away. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it's all, it's very lovely in a way in that these clubs get to create this kind this new identity, but I guess it also reinforces then the super clubs at the top.
0: Hmm. Is that a danger? Well, yeah, I mean, football's definitely gone that direction where um, money has kind of consistently kind of flowed more and more to the top and, and the perverse thing in a way is that more and more fans are watching football than ever. So more and more money's coming to the game and a lot of that money, you know, all the big clubs saying, well, the fans are coming to watch us. So the money comes back in, you kind of get get this cycle. Um, but yeah, I mean, on, on the kind of brand identity thing, I think, I think it's becoming particularly relevant with discussions around a potential European Super League and, and the you know direction that's going because Suddenly, as a club...
2: And Can you just explain the sure. European Super League?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, there's... Obviously, for uh, probably the last 10, 15 years, um, a lot of the big clubs um, see greater value in playing against each other, and, you know, you know, the audiences that Champions League games bring and, obviously, World Cup games bring, you get a sense of when high-quality plays each other it tends to bring in a big audience. Uh, and so, obviously, there's been a lot in the media around the ECA, which is the European Clubs Association, of the big clubs getting together and discussing potential plans for... For a future Champions League, but it's almost like a closed shop Champions League potentially, uh, which I think it's it's one of those kind of interesting ones because almost as a fan, it's it's quite there'll be really high quality matches, but you know football's got a great history of of lower league teams and smaller teams coming through the divisions and, and winning titles and so on, and I think football's got an imperative to protect that as well. But but I think if that is the direction travel at the top end of the game, then I think clubs. Across the world, almost have to refine that identity because suddenly you don't have an opportunity to be, you know, an interesting. Or rather, if you're not in the European Super League, you have to be interesting in some other way. You know, in a way, you know, you have to either develop players in a unique way or be a be some kind of feeding ground for top clubs or be some something different. Um, And I think that you know we're only probably five, six years away potentially
1: from from that new structure in in the Champions League. So that's not a long period of time for these. These clubs to adapt, or we get there by, by stealth, which looks like happening at the moment. Yeah. So we get various changes. They talked about having uh, promotion relegation between the Champions League and the second UEFA mm-hmm. competition, which would would not be a close shot, but you'd end up with you know Effective an outcome that looks yeah. very similar. I mean, do you, do you see merit from a pragmatic point of view for for smaller clubs in almost formalising their relationship with bigger clubs in terms of? actually you know you want to see a club who are basically they Man mad city b but they're called a, a different name yeah
0: yeah potentially i mean obviously you're already getting to that to a degree with multi-club ownership and again that's something that you know we've been asked by owners before around potential clubs to invest in with with that in mind and that you know if, if my club is going to be you know a european super league club i can't stick 18 year olds in that team because they're just not going to be good enough at the age of 18 so i need to find some kind of pathway through to the through to that that team so I think yeah, that is that is a, a definitely a realistic prospect where you get kind of teams marrying up with with other teams. And I mean, it's, some some clubs will wel- welcome the, um, the prospect. I mean, we did a lot of work in the Netherlands last summer and some clubs didn't mind the prospect of Ajax, Feyenoord, PSV playing more European competitions, because actually for them, suddenly it's an opportunity to be Dutch champions, you know, the best team in the Netherlands, essentially. <laughs> Uh, so you might get this kind of perverse kind of almost cycles in, you know, who knows? In, in fifty years' time, you get like a I don't know second tier of European Super League, and suddenly it's the next tier of teams. It could be Dutch champions and so on. But yeah, that's that's definitely the direction it's heading.
1: So big picture, what are the inefficiencies in football? The biggest
0: ones? Um, well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is a good question. Um, so there's probably there's one probably provocative answer, which is um, one of my uh, someone's once put to me, which is um, the almost the people in football. Sometimes um, it's is it's an interesting industry where, you know, every, everyone wants to work in football and, I, and kind of I, I see the irony and talk about this myself, because I'm working football, and I, I always wanted to work in football and, <laughs> and kind of, you know, uh, and have ended up in it, I've been fortunate to end up in it. Um, but I'd say, Football clubs really should be looking to recruit people who would be desirable in other industries. So I mentioned, um, you know, some clubs recruiting PhD physicists. You know, they could go work in finance, they could go work in engineering, they could go work anywhere. But a football club has gone. Well, actually, these guys got brains, and they could probably help us in a football club context.
2: Well, you're almost a case in point. Because am I right in saying that you studied economics?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to get into what you two are doing right now, which is, I wanted to get into journalism when, when I was, uh, sounds university. like what you're doing. It's much more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I well, yeah, I started, I studied economics and all my, all my friends went off. Um, to work in the city or work in some kind of, um, yeah, uh, some kind of, uh, non-sporting role, I guess. Um, and yeah, I just had an interest in sport and wanted to get into it. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I there's some conversations I have in, in football which are really kind of invigorating. And a lot of the time it's actually people who may not come from, from football backgrounds. Um, so I think, I, I, to be honest, football clubs are getting much smarter in that respect. You see a lot of ownership groups now that, are, that don't come from football backgrounds and so might come from finance, might come from other industries and therefore looking to you know, run it as, as a business. And in any other business you would look to kind of recruit the best possible staff you can get. Um, because at the end of the day, you know football clubs have fairly constrained budgets. It's very difficult to grow your revenues overnight without winning on the pitch. And so, if you're stuck with hundred million to spend, you need to find a way of spending that hundred million better than the other clubs that, who's got hundred million to spend.
1: There's a famous quote from uh, Charles Barkley, a former mm. um, NBA All Star, who he said of the kind of. New wave vanillas, you know, they're they're just a bunch of nerds who want to get in the game. They yeah. they, they didn't get the girls in school now. They want to cling on to the league. So to become involved. sounds, sounds you know. about right. <laughs> is, that same, is that the same feelings you, you get? I mean, uh, are people distrustful of you because you, you didn't you didn't play professionally or whatever?
0: Um, well, uh, it's kind of weird because I'm in a circumstance where um, often the clubs will get to meet are the ones who are open minded. It, um, but so you see the best of it. I see the best of it, but I have been in rooms where. Um, yeah have been completely shot down it's not not as explicit as that but you can tell there's an underlying kind of resentment there of being challenged and having you know years of experience and years of kind of history in the game of of being challenged um i remember being at a meeting at a at a club once um not in the uk i should add um where um the, it, we'd been invi- there were two owners to the club and one owner had invited us to do a workshop with um with the club, and it had like we had the manager in there, director of football, um, you know, people from operations, analysts, and so on. And he had the other owner in the club, who's also the CEO. And he just he just sat at the back of the room. We were in a little kind of skybox uh, at the club. He sat in the back of the room with his aviator sunglasses on, and he just kind of spent two three hours just batting everything <laughs> that he said out of hand. And it was it was probably one of the longest days of my life, just sitting there and just having all these kind of very you know unprovable opinions that he was kind of spout, spouting out Um they were think, just re- they were kind of conventional wisdoms conventional wisdoms exactly and and sometimes i had some evidence but then he'd come back with this kind of far-reaching anecdotes um of some evidence that kind of came you know counterbalance what or kind of was a counterpoint to what, to what i was saying so that that you do get meetings like that but thankfully they're less and
1: less now where either because the industry's changing or we're just a bit more selective about
0: who we uh, who we work
1: with in in your all your research what is the, surprising, what's the finding that's most surprised you? Um, it's a good question. Um, well, I,
0: I think I'm always surprised at the kind of almost success rate of recruitment. Um, we often use a stat that around 50% of transfers fail, or 50% succeed, if you like, uh, which is based on essentially the amount of minutes uh, a player plays after, after he signs. Uh, and even if you look at record signings, so you know if you you can kind of picture it, you know the player with the shirt, yeah, you know signing sign the contract with the manager, everyone's happy. Only about fifty, sixty percent of record signings actually, actually. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, end up being core players during during their first season. So a lot of the time, they're sitting on the bench in, in their first season, uh, and you know they, these are clubs that are spending. 15, 20, 25% of their, of their overall revenue on a transfer fee and then that the, that asset is, is sitting on the bench.
1: And is that just because recruiting players is innately you know, hazardous mm. or uh, how, What that 50% rate mm. of success, how much could that rise to if a club is, is smart? Yeah,
0: so I think on the first point, I think you're right, like, there's a huge human element to recruiting players and I think there's always a danger, you know, when, uh, when people talk to us, they think sometimes, oh, you know, you're just sitting at a laptop picking up players and, and you, you have no understanding of how they kind of fit into into the club. And I think we're, we're always, certainly from a data point of view, when you're looking at recruitment, it's all about there are 1,000, 10,000 players out there. You can't watch them all. How can you get it down to a list that's more manageable that you then can go watch and really try and understand and do the background due diligence and so on? Um, so you're not, you're missing as few players as, as you possibly can um but but i think that there is scope for clubs to get that up to to kind of 60 70 percent um just by just by you know either becoming specialists in some some respects i think some clubs almost recruit um I, i think there's scope in going okay this is what we're really good at and this is what this
1: is what we're going to try and do so, so think, what we're we're really good at recruiting players from Norway or whatever yeah exactly
0: so yeah. so i think burnley are a good case study in that right so burnley don't do any recruitment from overseas um they go right we're just going to recruit english players they are the brexit club they're, yeah. they're <laughs> the brexit <laughs> club and and they they're very good at it. saying they pre- like they're stockpiling yeah they burnley really by right shouldn't be in the premier league you know they're not you know they haven't got a big stadium they haven't got an enormous fan base but they managed to stay in the league through Sean Dyche being an excellent manager, but also, you know, recruiting players who they knew you would work for, for Burnley and they know exactly what they're looking for.
2: It's a very utilitarian approach in that there will be more people that do succeed and less that will fall through the net. But what about the, the romanticism of sport, yeah. of those those people that, that don't have the stats, the data doesn't work for them, or even just come in a bit later, who develop a bit later? Maybe, um, I'm trying to think or Jamie Vardy's at Leicester, yeah. for example. Is there a danger that relying so much on stats is going to lose those players. Yeah,
0: potentially, and this, this is kind of where the differentiator strategy comes in, because if everyone goes one way, then there might be a hole opening up on the other side. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, the, the record of signing players from non-league football is, is not great, like, the, you know, you can watch non-league football, the vast, vast, vast majority of those players aren't going to be Premier League players. Um, now, Jamie Vardy happens to come through it, so clubs always kind of picture the, the prospect of that happening. But if but if, if suddenly everyone reallocates a resource to no, scouting I don't know, let's say Belgium because Belgium's fashionable at the moment, then yes there might be an opportunity there because no one else is doing that. So th- there's always this kind of element of you know it's a zero sum game in it. So you, if you take the other side, then then
1: there's always an opportunity there. Um, so so the smart thing to do, you can't almost know, you can't just kind of work that out in isolation. You need to be looking at what everyone else is doing. Yeah exactly yeah I mean if you yeah exactly if you tr- if you I mean you mentioned Moneyball right at the start you know the one of my
0: favourite lines in it um, is, uh, you know, uh, Brad Pitt playing Billy Bean going, and if we play like the Yankees in here, we'll lose the Yankees out there because their budgets are just miles apart. Uh, and it's the same same for you know football clubs. Um, one of my one of my favourite stories, though, kind of working in, in in this industry was was about a year ago, a Red Star Belgrade um, came to us and they'd won the the Serbian league that qualified the Champions League. Um, qualifying rounds, um, and they were looking for an attacking midfielder. Um, and bear in mind Red Star, Belgrade, probably their overall turnover is probably, I don't know, less than 20 million euros, maybe like close to 10 million euros. Um, so we're talking like League One level here. Um, and, but obviously the Serbian market, it's not like they can scale yeah. the Serbian market, there's only so many players in Serbia. So they, they had a short list of uh, number 10s that they were looking to looking to recruit. Um, but they, they said to us, can you, can you kind of help us look at other players? Uh, and bear in mind that there isn't much data collected at kind of Serbian league level. So the very biggest leagues in, in European football, not only are you counting every kind of pass, tackle, shot, but you're also tracking the movement of every single player every tenth of a second. So there's a huge amount of information for, for top clubs to get their teeth into. But for a, for a club like Red Star, there is very little data on the Hungarian league or the Bulgarian league where, to find out about players. Um, but one of the things we've been w- doing a lot of work on is trying to extract value from just getting like, line up data, for example. So, if someone's starting regularly for the best team in Bulgaria, how likely are they, how good are they likely to be? Um, and so, anyway, to Red Star gave us their attacking midfield shortlist, we went away and went, okay, let's try and find players who we rate as potentially better than these players uh, who may be out contract or are being paid less um, than, than the average Red Star player. And uh, we gave them a list of, so I think, about 10, 15 players. Um, and one of them was a was a player playing in Cyprus for Apoel, a guy called Lorenzo Basilio, um, and so they got that list. They went and did their due diligence. They looked at some of these players they'd not heard of before, uh, and a couple of months later they signed Lorenzo Basilio um, from from Apoel to Red Star. So, this was you know our analysts kind of looking at kind of top level numbers of players and trying to get from the thousands of players that, that Red Star could sign to something that was much more manageable list that they could then do their video analysis and much more kind of softer softer skills on, and obviously Red Star have had a you know really good season. They reached Champions League group stages, knocked out I think Salzburg in the qualifiers, beat Liverpool in um, in the group stages. So yeah, it's it's kind of a, a quite a nice fun success story where you know the, a club that had a very small budget suddenly had their pool opened up, their world of kind of players opened up just through data, which just wouldn't have been possible before because all they would have had was agents recommending players to them.
2: You you talk, touched a little bit on soft skills there. Um, do you think data starting to therefore incorporate things that in the past have been unquantifiable, mm. like team cohesion and just good characters?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think in football it's been, there hasn't been much looked at in terms of um, player performance in different situations. So we, we actually have a um, sister golf business, um, 15th Club, who have done a lot of looking at golfers in stressful rounds. So when they're kind of either... I think leading in the final round, or um, yeah, chasing in the final round. Look at those different scenarios. And actually, I don't think a lot of work has been done in football in that. where looking at when a team goes behind, does do certain players kind of typically make safe passes or typically change the way they play? You know, I, you, know you think of like Liverpool teams in the past under Steven Gerrard um, when they were losing games. It was like everyone get the ball to Gerrard, and yeah. let him have a let him have a shot, which is a bad strategy. With potentially, yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I I don't think data is there yet quantifying, but I think other I think clubs are beginning to look at it through other means. So a lot of doing kind of um, psychological testing of players. But the but the issue is you can only do that once you get your players in the building. So it's very difficult to do that players externally, and that's that's a real challenge where data could help in the future, but it's it's not there yet. What are the questions
1: you'd like to be able to answer that you can't yet? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, huh. um, I think.
0: I think predicting um, talent through uh, from from the academy through to the first team, I think, is a is a really interesting one. Um, you know, I th- particularly particularly in this country, we've got probably a, a, an issue with with players getting developed through to the first team, um, and part of the reason is probably well, in that they, they don't. In that Eng- English English clubs spend a lot of money on on developing players in their academies, but obviously the. Uh, the Premier League's got roughly kind of third English players, and uh, there's there's a number of reasons for that. But probably one of the reasons is uh, clubs can't really kind of understand that the, the quality of players that they have within their their academy. And I think data can potentially help clubs quantify. Well, this guy's doing this under 23 level, or he did this out on loan. This is what he, his ceiling could be in, um, in the Premier League. A lot a lot of kind of young player recruitment is is I think to a degree not guesswork, it's educated guesswork, but it's you know it's kind of seeing in your mind's eye rather than really doing some kind of object, you know, kind of a objective projection on, on players.
2: And what about this idea of sort of data creep into younger and younger players? Mm. Because in cricket, for example, one of the sort of major arguments against players specializing or only playing one sport earlier is that actually, a just enjoying what they're yeah, doing, yeah, yeah. and b having. Acquiring different skills from different sports means you read by my articles. <laughs> oh, Tim! <laughs> means that they they actually when they do get to sort of fully develop players in their mm-hmm. mid early twenties, they're much better. But how do you stop that? Data, I, I guess, infringing or cramping them when they're that young. And is yeah. there a line?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's it's a great question. I I probably wouldn't know the answer to that. Um, you, you can definitely. I imagine you could probably overcoach players very easily by going you know this is the benchmark you need to hit and there's obviously a very a lot of the issue with kind of football metrics is that they are um i don't know you, you can find like a correlation between passing and winning football matches but that doesn't mean you should just go out there and pass the football right there, there are other things going on there that essentially help you win games and i think one of you know, one of the challenges you can have with young players is you have all these benchmarks of what you should be hitting, and actually they're not, they're not the things that are driving development or driving, you know, how good a player actually
1: is. They just happen to be kind of box-ticking exercises. So I imagine that
0: is a potential danger,
1: We've talked a lot about uh, for kind of football off-the-field recruitment and so on, in terms of the game itself and how it's played. Are there smarter strategies that are underused by teams?
0: Yeah, so I mean, a lot, a lot of people talk about um, set pieces. Um, we're actually kind of looking at this for a bit of fun. What we tend to do in the office uh, yesterday, <laughs> um, looking at kind of um, quality of chances kind of created and, and not and not created at, at set pieces in the Premier League. And it was, it was it was actually quite interesting. A lot of the clubs coached by English in- in- or British coaches were the best at creating chances from set pieces um, compared to everyone else in, in the league, um, which you know is off the back of Gareth Southgate you know, doing great well at set pieces with, yeah. with England in in, in the summer. Um, so you know the 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 range of um of kind of set piece goal scoring if you like the top teams might convert from say seven eight percent of set pieces in all corners from a season the worst teams might convert from about two percent if you take that over the average number of corners that's roughly equates to kind of six to eight goals over a season which is four or five points which is quite a lot you know particularly the bottom end of the league if you can get you know, Cardiff would kill for four or five more yeah. points at the moment. To be fair, game. Cardiff are pretty good at corners, so they're probably maxing out in that respect, but there are probably other teams down there that, that are struggling in that. So it is amazing, you know, how many almost goals you can buy from from set pieces. And that there are clear distinctions and skills between some teams and, and others. But, um, but I think the one the one most interesting one for me, and because it's across sport, is um, the concept of, of loss aversion hurting team performance. So what you often see in football is that when um, teams go behind, they tend to become much more attacking and actually their rate of scoring increases. And similarly, when teams go, go ahead, they tend to sit back and they, their rate of scoring decrease and then they're much more likely to concede. And you see this, um, you see it um, in, in, in golf. So there's, there's loss aversion when it comes to putting. People when they're putting for birdie tend to leave it a little bit short so they have an easy putt to get to par rather than going more aggressively, which is what they tend to do when they're, when they're putting for par. Going for fourth down in nfl uh, i know we've chatted before yeah. about in cricket um you know about uh, yeah, t20 kind of openers being exactly too being too yeah. defensive and, and really going for it so i think it's kind of it's a cross sport thing and i think it's almost to the good of the game because if if teams are loss, less loss averse they can be more, obviously more attacking which is potentially more interesting to watch more open games more goals um so i think there's there's something in that and i, I think The clubs that can crack that through some kind of uh, either incentivisation scheme with players around uh, performance bonuses, which at the moment are largely kind of done very almost as a kind of hygiene factor at clubs where we'll give you a five grand bonus, we'll give you a 10 grand win bonus, but, but it's not really incentive. It's more like a reward. So I think that there are mechanisms clubs can implement where they can really get teams to keep push on when they're one nil uh, and kind of push for the second goal. Um, so uh, that area in particular interests me because that's kind of obviously a human psychology thing.
1: Um, is, there, is there an action um, Is there an action bias, so you know, the clubs always want to sat their manager or buy <coughs> a new star player rather than look at what they already have?
0: Yeah, definitely, um, and the, the kind of counterpoint, not counterpoint, but counter example to that is, is Spurs, um, obviously last summer, well, last 12 months, who haven't signed anyone, um, they've been, you know, comfortable with their squad, um, and they've they've known their squad was relatively young, and so they were always going to improve. You know, all the players like Son, Kane, Lucas, Ericsson, Deli, they're all kind of either before or at peak age now. So they could just go, well, actually, we don't need to do anything here. We're going to improve, and now they're in a in a Champions League semi final. So the the, the the kind of pressure from fans, the pressure from just you know being in an industry where you get a result every week. You know, there's outside of sport you don't have that kind of pressure you know you get a quarterly boardroom report um, and you might be able to go you might be able to kind of you know uh, talk broadly about the things that are going on there but everyone has an opinion on football and it's very difficult to, to not show that you're doing something um, so I think Spurs are a good example of, of having kind of fought against that uh, um, this season.
2: I guess sport and football in particular is, is very different to other um, professions because of that public scrutiny. Mm. But um, do you think that that say econ- economists in the city and those working in sport, do you is there a lot of integration and sharing or should there be more or less?
0: In terms of what, in terms of knowledge sharing not
2: knowledge sharing but approaches yeah. to you know maximising profits, yeah, I guess yeah. in both walks of life. Yeah
0: definitely I think um as I one of the kind of key things that uh, one of the key books, probably that's been written in the last ten years, is Daniel Kahneman's *Thinking, Fast and Slow*, which was all about uh, understanding human biases and these kind of natural instincts, these System One instincts that we have that are actually wrong or lead us down the, the kind of incorrect path. And so I know in the financial industry that that book, stuff written by Nassim Taleb and so on, has been really kind of seized upon as as evidence of of kind of mispractice or, or kind of wrong wrong way of going about things. Um, by you know. You, I don't know, it, it, the kind of, you always have these kind of hot hand fallacies in, in trading as well and all these kind of um, inefficiencies that exist in trading that just simply because of the way our, our brains are wired. So I think football's beginning to realize that and it comes from this kind of consistent theme of better understanding of our brains and behavioral economics and so on. Um So yeah, it's funny, even though they're probably
1: very different industries, there's actually a lot they can probably learn from each other. Just a couple of final ones. Um With Manchester United now, obviously <laughs> very topical and now in mean, crisis again. Yeah. Um, but how would you evaluate, I suppose, the Ole Solskjaer effect or lack thereof with the huge bounce when he comes and a huge dip in the last couple of months? What, what's what's going on there?
0: Yeah, so I mean, we've obviously done a lot on um, on new head coach hire and, and head coach bounce. Um, so which is a just regression to the mean? Yeah, so so the first thing to understand is that most coaches are sacked when they've been unlucky. So. Football being a low-scoring sport means that the better team can often lose, and and that usually happens, you know, in the in the run-up to to a head coach being sacked. So they've gone through three, four results where they've maybe played okay and then ended up losing. That's probably less the case with Mourinho. The team was not playing anywhere near certainly what their budget expectations were. Um, and we've kind of very broadly kind of cut it down to new manager balances about seventy-five percent um, luck evening out, and about twenty-five percent. Sometimes better fixtures, which is what Scholzhire definitely had, uh, but also just a you know lifting of the club, which um, which is you know kind of pretty clear, I think, in in, in the case of what happened with Scholzhire there. Um at, at, but obviously that that's not a sustainable approach. Yeah. You're not always gonna have easier fixtures and you're not always <laughs> gonna kind of be able to lift yourself to for, for the manager even for you know for a for a long period of time. So the results were always gonna come down a little bit. It's worth bearing in mind that they've lost to very good teams, right? They've, so they've lost to uh, in recent weeks, lost to Everton away, which is not an easy game, lost to City, lost to uh, um Wolves twice. Wolves twice, um Arsenal. Arsenal. So not not easy games and any team can kinda of go through a run like that. But performance has been quite poor as well. Performance yeah, they've been, well they they played pretty well against Arsenal, I thought they played okay against Man City last night, but there, there's clearly their their squad is clearly not as good as um certainly Manchester City's and I think um you know a lot of people have pointed to the fact uh if you look at you know since Ferguson left there's been there's been a lot of issues there. I think um, if you look at the squad, Sir Alex Ferguson won the title with. There was certainly there were, you can really date it back to back then because they had this a lot of ageing players like Van Persie, Vidic, Ferdinand, Evra, Rooney, and a lot of young players, uh, but not a lot in between. Uh, I think in Moyes' season, the only 26 year old they had was Maradon Fellaini. And 26 is broadly around peak age for for uh, for most positions. So. That there's a lot of issues you can trace back there, and trying to potentially correct those mistakes and, and rejuvenate the squad because when teams do decline, it can be hard to come back. So up. for
2: Ferguson, for example, that it was only at that point of time that he was ever going to be able to achieve that sort of success. Yeah, Got out at the right time.
0: Yeah, it was, it's interesting. It would have been really fascinating to see Ferguson manage for for another couple of seasons because the the squad, look, like it's easy to say in hindsight, but I think the squad did need um, a bit of a bit of change um, at the time that they, they were. There were older players and. You know, even someone like Dan Percy the following season picked up a lot of injuries. He didn't get that in the twelve thirteen season. So yeah, it's one of the great kind of untold questions. I know, I mean, obviously Fraxbergs himself kind of rejects the idea that the squad was aging as you know, as, uh, who am I to kind of question it? But certainly if you look historically at kind of age curves, United's was not not in an optimal position.
1: What do you think this world looks like in five years' time? Uh whew, um well, I guess it depends a lot on the
0: European Super League, doesn't it? <laughs> no, that G- but in
1: terms of the relationship between the, the nerds like like yourself yeah. and the football club. What? Oh, <laughs> <Just> How rude. <laughs>
0: um, so yeah, uh, I, like, more and more clubs have hired data scientists uh, and more and more clubs have hired, as I say, kind of people from, from interesting various backgrounds out, outside of sport. Uh, I think the key is getting those people in, in positions that are going to influence decisions. Um, I think there's a lot of potentially um, ticking a box feeling you need to have someone in there but also like we've you know we've helped a number of teams recruit data scientists and recruit people in senior positions because actually they're not always sure what they're looking for it's a bit like a club going oh i need a midfielder it's like do you need a second midfielder defensive midfielder what do you need and the same with same with anyone working in data do you need someone who is building predictive models do you need someone who's going to be taking Know, tracking data manipulating and understand movements of players you need someone who's going to be doing and then looking at youth development data there's, a, there's actually a really broad range of things that we have and, and within our business we've got certain strengths that we're good at and that's what we help clubs with we've got certain things we're like well actually we're not that great with data on that so kind of you know we, we wouldn't we work with sports science data for example because we, we, don't, know this, we don't know the first thing about sports science um, it, when it comes to kind of tracking data and that type of thing so there's yeah I think more and more clubs will get savvier about um, recruiting those. I think it's still a slow journey. You know, I, I, you know, joined 21st Club five years ago, and I think there has been progress, but you would still say there's, I don't know, um, there's still probably less than half the Premier League who have, I would say, from a data perspective, someone from a, someone really using the data to really heavily influence decision making. Um, and maybe four or five years ago that maybe that was a quarter of the Premier League so it's still fairly incremental uh, and of course the Premier Leagues and everything there's this there's, there's hundreds of clubs out there who who actually a lot of them do see England as kind of best practice on, on a lot of things when it comes to um, kind of front office and uh, management of, of clubs
1: so I think it's still still a little way off and absolutely last question who are the two or three smartest clubs in the world right now <laughs> um
0: well, all the ones that work with 21st Club, aren't they? So. <laughs> <Which> are? <laughs> uh, I won't go
1: into that. <laughs> uh, Omar, thanks very much. Cheers.
2: Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of Sport Inc. Join us again next time, where we'll be looking at sport from an entirely different angle altogether. Until then, goodbye.